after 50 times, I could never figure out whether I, I, th I actually thought this record was good or it was complete crap. Like, I still, I would just go, is this record good or is this record just awful? And I would listen to it again just to figure that out. Well, that's the one he did with lots of overdubs. Yeah, right? just Everything. overdubs. But right. it's like, and so recently, I have to say, weirdly, I bought it again after all these years, like, I don't know, just about like three months ago, I bought it just to listen to it, just to see what it was like. It's crap. <laughs> you hear that, Adam? Watch out, Dorn. Watch out, Dorn. <laughs> I love Les McCann. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, we named our but, podcast Compared to What? That's oh, the right. name of the podcast. No, it's kind of, it's like crap. It's just kind of, it's so, it's kind of a ballsy record. It's just so weird. What year is this? Like 1971 71, or something, something yeah. like that. Yeah. It's just so trippy. It's like yeah. the trippiest, weirdest record. Yeah, he. Yeah. I mean, you listen to the, the the interview with him. I mean, they're not really interviews. We just talk. You know what yeah. I mean? That's all that it is. And he just tells stories. And he talks about that record a bit and a few other right. things. But, but um, I really, no. I, I, I loved that record. I just couldn't decide whether I should love it. Ah, that was that was because you, you know were when at you, the age, right? You're when the you age, yeah. like, well, if I say I like this, is Ex someone going to come down on me? Exactly. You, you know, know? You, it's so much important to be on the right side when you're or, that age. when you're that age. You're like, I, I really, I really don't know. I mean, I really should like, I like right? Should, should I like this? Like is this. it is it jazz? Is it is it you know is it a music that's politically you know I should like politically or socioeconomically <laughs> or you know you just it's all like that right now now those they don't have to make that decision because it's all crap <laughs> it's all the same thing it's all like a, it's all like all the music that the kids in their 20s the, like the way i see it it's just a dollar store yeah it's just one big dollar <laughs> store it's just that doesn't matter what you got you get those nail clippers they're a dollar and yeah. they're gonna break right and you know what that colander maybe a few loads of spaghetti and you know those those little slippers right Maybe in the shower at the gym a few yeah. times, but and it's just all it's a of a sudden the little thing will come off when you fit your yeah. I don't think any of them toe. even sit down and think, hmm, should I listen to Taylor Swift or 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 um or, or Beyonce? I don't even think they make that distinction. It's just like, hmm, what do I want? You know, do I want a crappy pair of slippers or do I want a colander that's going to break next week? <laughs> so. You you were telling I mean of course we've been on the road many many years et cetera et cetera and you were telling me some uh, great stories about a, a picture that like we always try to get in this thing is like you know how the paradigms have shifted right. so much through time which I think is a kind of a natural thing but you know just the extreme of the paradigm shift and you know because there's there's you and I are from slightly, we're at different ends of the same kind of era in mm -hmm. a lot of ways, and also in slightly different eras. Um, when you came here in the 70s to New York City, it was an entirely artistic, I'm not even going to speak about like the, the economic situation, no, the, the artistic right. thing, which I'm, I'm sure comes out of it because it's all connected, but an entirely different paradigm. Yeah, I mean the zeitgeist was completely different. It was, you know, it wasn't so much about food. <laughs> <laughs> 
which was it Livy, the Roman historian? He said, "I mean, I paraphrased." Yeah, when, what was it about? When, when the chefs become uh, the stars, the civilization is in serious decline. Yeah, or something like so, that's the, the yeah. beginning. Of, yeah, that's yeah. Well, look at San Francisco. It's like in full. It's in yeah. full degenerative yeah. swing. I, I mean, guess in that, if if that's the. <laughs> yardstick by which we measure San Francisco is over. Man. But it's like, it's weird. I was just talking to Andrew about this last night. It's just sort of like, you know, we never thought about food. We thought about, we talked about music and philosophy. Mm. That's what we talked about. I mean, we'd be much more likely to talk about Kierkegaard than, than you know, a grass-fed burger. Right, you know, right, like, right. But now it's just so, uh, yeah, it's so amazing. It's like, I, I think it's just like everybody's a lifestyler. You know, mm, it's mm. all about lifestyling. But New York, then so basically, was, it's like the complete, total, utter triumph of the dilettante. Yeah. The meek have inherited the earth. <laughs> I don't know about the meek, but certainly the the sleek, the sleek. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, you know, it's New York was. Um, it was just the thing I, I always remember about New York. It was just much more risk taking. Yeah, everybody was like you. You could, but that has to do exactly with everything. The rents, the rents were cheaper, so you know, like you could. The clubs didn't have to pay eight billion dollars a month, so they you, they would say, okay, like you got your Tuesday night, you could do what you know, you could fart in the microphone yeah. for yeah, hours, yeah. which some people literally practically did. You know, <laughs> uh, you know, you uh, you could blow bubbles in water. You can, you know, I remember playing a gig where I was literally playing. Um, this weird set where the guy had me with a spatula playing, um, you know, like a thin a stream of water with a spatula. It was contact mic. <laughs> that was my symbol. Like I shit like that, that yeah. you know, like you, but you can do weird shit like sure. that. Now everything, the weird shit seems rather, um, uh, yeah, and rather just kind of pre-thought out in a way there wasn't before. Well, you know? the way the way that I see it is, it's definitely comes out of a soccer mom culture. Well, it comes out of school. That's what I mean by yeah. the soccer yeah. mom yeah. culture. I mean, it's know. like you you go to some of these gigs and and you know bless anyone who wants to try to follow music, especially as a career, especially in this day or and damn age. them. Yeah, or damn them, you know. <laughs> but, you know, you definitely, you, you go to the, a lot of these gigs and their frame of reference is so, it's, it's so closed because their reality, they didn't come up with the reality that you did or even that I did, but yet... That when they go to music school, that is the reality that's being taught, so to speak. But that reality is unteachable. You can't teach that. You have to live that reality. So when you go to a lot of these gigs, you know, I'm like, oh, okay, great. You know, they're playing the the metric, the the bar is moving. Every every new system is another odd time signature, and the and they're citing the Indian music in this. But I just when I get down to the when you when you remove all of the intellectual or not even intellectual when you move all of the cerebral out of that the feeling you're left with as opposed to like going to a Johnny Copeland gig right. the feeling that you're left with is I feel like all these guys their parents are outside waiting for them in minivans <laughs> to take them home off. after the gig you know it's well, like the same thing as my kids baseball games right. well know? somehow there must be a way to make that even that soulful but I haven't heard it yet I mean it's just merely clever and I I just really have come to detest clever. I used to I used to really be impressed by clever when I was young, but now I hate clever. Of course. Yeah. And and you know, there's a certain 
you talk about a way a reality. I mean, there's a certain reality in the and way you play when you've played a gig like you know I played this gig once. I think I told you this story. You know, it was in an old hard drinking bar in Buffalo, New York, where they hadn't had a band in 25 years, and my this guitar player stupidly decided to get a gig there. So we had this gig, and we go in and. All these guys are. It's you know this was in like we're setting up and they they go well we got to move the pool table, you know and this guy's what you know it was like you know like the pool table had not been moved in twenty five years and when they moved it you know you could see there was like on the floor stains where the you know all the like (laughs) okay so they right where the legs were they moved it over to the end and then. You know, we started to set up, and all the guys that were playing pool just proceeded to like sit on the pool table and just stare at us, right? And I remember very well the guy was staring at me, and he he took out his switchblade, you know, and he switched it on, and he started picking his teeth with it, and he looked at me and he just said, Are "You guys any good?" And I said, "You know, my, I was like only you know twenty. So, well, yeah, we're we're good. We're I, we're pretty good." And he said, "You know, because if you guys aren't any good." Johnny's going to kill you. <laughs> and I think that there's, you know, once you play a gig like that, where you uh, where you really think that you're going to be murdered yeah. if you're not good, yeah. it kind of changes your reality, you know? Oh, man, it changes I, the way I, you play. It, it is, and it's an experience. I mean, and, you know, those experiences I don't think really are open to them anymore. Just like where food is king, it changes that relationship. No, nobody's getting a gig like that where Johnny's no. going to kill no, you. No, I mean, and I, I, you, you, I played a gig in Modesto. I remember I was like 17 years old, and it was like a kind of a... Um, this kind of was like a rockabilly blues kind of band. And um, I remember we played this gig and it was in a similar kind of place like the, in Modesto, California, you right. know. Um, and uh, it was a biker bar. Right. And I mean, I grew up in Berkeley well, I've and in Oakland. I've seen bars. that stuff, you know. And we came up with some, you know, we came up with a few tunes and they kind of were digging it. And then this one guy came up to me and he was like, you better play some slow blues because we need to dance with our ladies. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, yes, sir. So blues it is. Right. He was like three of me duct taped together. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, that is just that, that. That really, you know, is a different reality. Yeah. Then you know, here's this what you play over the scale you play over this chord, and you know, this kind. Of, here's how to play correctly. Right. You know, and here's how to play so that everyone will be happy, and later on we can go out and get our lattes and and you know and and nice little wine spritzers and yeah. you know and, and everything is cool. Everybody loves each other. Exactly. Yeah. We love each other, and we're not. It's like the this generation. If people they don't watch out, this generation of musicians are going to be as numb as the 1950s generation of housewives that preceded <laughs> them if they're not careful. You know. <laughs> So stock up on diet pills. Yeah. So when you when you came here, you were telling me like one of the first people you met was. Um, well, why don't you tell that story? You, Wayne. Wayne. Well, the first person I met, that very first person, Wayne was Hortons. Elliot. Elliot Sharp. Sure. And he, because I knew him in Buffalo, and we had gone. He had spent like ten seconds at the University of Buffalo. I, I, I graduated there. He was there only a minute. He was in the composition program with Morton Feldman, and um, and very famously. Well, you were too. Yeah, you? yeah, and very famously, um, 
you know, Elliot had his senior recital or his end of year semester recital, and I was on it. And it was kind of weirdly nascent Elliot Sharp, you know, Elliot Sharp in training, you know, because he was young. And, and he had all his kind of concepts, but they weren't sort of really finished in his mind yet. But he did have, of course, a conga player who just whose job was just to go, just play 16th notes while we did all the fractal shit over it or whatever he was into. Well, anyway, the conga player who couldn't read anyway, you know, we all got up on stage. And all he was supposed to do is do but just before we started Morton Feldman called Elliot over and said come here put a put a, um, a, a music stand in front of that guy because he he didn't want anybody to think that anyone was improvising Got that's how you. deep wow, it was and wow. so Elliot then moved on and he moved to New York and I stayed in Buffalo for a while and then when I came to New York I I stayed with Elliot for a, a minute at his, you know, like his avenue, his his Seventh uh, Street between B and C apartment. Oh boy, and oh this my, is the seventies. Oh right? yeah, yeah, oh early seventies. Oh yeah, I, I was so scared. Like I came from Buffalo, I was paying two hundred twenty dollars with a. I had like a, a sun porch, a garage, two porches, five rooms all by myself. I came to New York and I drove through the Holland Tunnel and my muffler fell off. And, you know, on my on my Ford Mustang, it was like <laughs> through the hot time. You know, in the middle of rush hour, and I got out on on Canal Street, and the light came on. You know, at the end of the tunnel on Canal Street, in the middle of rush hour, and then just people everywhere. And I was like, holy crap! Like, you know, when I'm driving through, and I'm trying to get to Seventh Street between B and C, and. And I'm driving through, I, I cut north and I'm driving through the West Village and it was just hilarious because all the way there I was having this running conversation with myself like, oh, this is kind of okay. I could live here, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. This isn't so nice. This is like the West Village. I'm going like, this is all right. You know, it's cool. And then I get like, I'm getting more and more like to the East Village. I'm going, wow, this is weird. Like, you know, Second Avenue. Oh my God. First Avenue. Oh my God. Avenue A. Oh no. <laughs> you know, like, I was so like, what is this? It's like a bomb, you know, a bomb hit. And, you know, I like him out, and he was very gracious to me, but he was the first person I met, and in the same building lived Zorn and um, Wayne Horvitz, and Wayne was the second person I met. And so from there, I just sort of was adopted into the downtown scene. It was just kind of, I just landed, and I was sort of, I guess, in the right place at the right time. There was no real drummer yet downtown mm, scene mm, drummer mm. really or someone like me who was kind of versed in in jazz and everything else and but really my first gig in new york was not a downtown gig it was a country gig it was a country music gig at the lone star cafe which is on fifth avenue right, and yeah 12th street or something it was a cool place it was like a round bar i'll never forget because we opened for kinky friedman oh yeah and kinky friedman's drummer was corky lang the guy in mountain right yes and corky course. lang and they and they informed me five minutes before their set that corky lang was going to use my drums no one had ever used my drums i was like what what do you mean you know it's like well kid you know if you don't use your drums like that's you're not playing the gig you know so i had to let corky lang use my drums but i'll never forget it because kinky friedman came out and had a huge cast on his right hand. Huge. He's a guitar player. He came out with his guitar. And he just went up to the mic. This is my first gig in New York. He went up to the mic and he just went, Excuse me, folks. I was jerking off and my balls blew up. <laughs> 
And I thought, okay, well, welcome to New York, Bobby. Yeah, yeah, you know, this yeah. is what it's like here. Oh, my but God. Then, you know, can you imagine somebody saying that now? Maybe they would at a burlesque show, which is why a lot of times when Andrew and I go out, we, we go to burlesque, which is even, even burlesque is starting to get, you know, corporatized and right, co-opted. But, right. you know, so, uh, yeah. Wow. That That's, was... <laughs> so, but when you, you were in, um, when you were in Buffalo, you grew up in Niagara Falls. Yeah. Which is now... You know, uh, it's 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 a uh, plywood. Yeah, <laughs> it's Niagara Falls. It's, it's just plywood. That's well, all that's I, I, there. You know, I, I there's another uh, one of these podcasts with a friend Monty Croft who grew up in Youngstown, Ohio. Uh huh. And same thing. It's very similar. You yeah. know, an industrial kind of yeah. to a one industry town, and yeah, and the industry's gone. But the, but the industry isn't gone. Of course, and Niagara Falls is still there. And it would have been fine if it wasn't for the just incredible graft. I mean, it's a total Italian town. You know, Italians are famous, you know, for, you know, putting too much concrete in a dam or... Just whatever. note, everyone, he has a vowel at the end of his... Yes, name. I am Italian, <laughs> so I can say it. I love Italians. I love Italy. The food is great. <laughs> no, but, you know, it's like, it was... Niagara Falls was so corrupt that it was not... It was 75% Italians in town, in, in the town. And until very recently, there wasn't even an Italian mayor because it didn't have to be. They always put Irish mares in there. So, because they could just control them, you know? And uh, yeah, so Niagara Falls was really, I'm gonna, my life's work eventually, my, 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 my last work, Charles, <laughs> will be an opera about Niagara Falls. Oh, man. I, I don't know. It's, it's quite a subject. It's incredible, Niagara Falls. So uh, yeah, I, I, but I grew up there and, you know, it was a real schizophrenic town because it's, in one sense, it's really completely international and it's the most provincial town you've ever, mm. ever mm. seen. So it was just a, a weird place to grow up. Very weird. Yeah, I'm sure. And, yeah. And, but uh, you you're, you came of age as a musician in... Um, oh, wait, but tell me the story about the drums. You always told me the story about, like, your first drum set that you made. Oh, my God, like, that's Manolium. a long story. Well, yeah. And, well, um, well, I wanted drums. For, I, I really wanted drums, and my father was like, no, no drums, you know. Uh, and he wanted me to go to school and become a doctor. I was the only... Smart man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, he was a coal miner, so he was a, like, he just was like... No, yeah, I was the only kid of my immediate and family, cousins and everything, who who was going to actually go to college. So then, when I announced to like I wanted to play the drums, that was just like forget. So it was just total resistance, and I was adamant I wanted to play the drums. So. I decided to make my own drum set. So I got, you know, an old garbage can, one of the heavy ones, you know, and I put it turned on its side. That was easy enough, the bass drum. But, you know, then I got a couple, you know, uh, peach baskets and just, just kind of, you know, like waste baskets for tom-toms. You know, okay, that was easy enough. Then I thought, you know, what about a snare drum? That's kind of hard. So I just got this really thin box and I just threw a bunch of crap in it. You know, just ruining. Yeah. So I said, okay, that's cool. But now I need cymbals and a bass drum pedal. I couldn't make a hi hat. That was too complicated. Way too yeah. complicated. So for the cymbals, I, I hit upon the idea of getting two plungers, 
And then I took these aluminum pie plates, I stole them from my mother, and I put them on top and I actually nailed them through, I put a nail on them to the top of the yeah. plunkers. Yeah, baby, and they were like, ding, 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 <laughs> ding, ding, ding. And so the last thing was a bass drum pedal and I thought, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make one. So I got two pieces of linoleum and I cut them out in the shape of my feet. And then I crimped the edge, one of the edges. And then I took a, coat hanger and, and wound it around the baseball bat as a spring and then kept a straight part and put the spring between the, if you could visualize this, between the two pieces of linoleum and stuck the straight part up the top piece of linoleum. And then I simply got a rubber ball and stuck it on yeah. that. And that thing worked perfectly. Oh, I bet it sounded great. It was great. It was great. It was great. It was great. And then, and, and uh, you know, and I would sit in my basement and I would turn all the lights off except for one spotlight. <laughs> And that I was, was the last time that ever happened. Exactly. <laughs> and I put the spotlight on myself and I would play the records. And of course I didn't know how to play drum how to play drums. So I would just play all the melodies of the song. If I was playing a Beatles song like She Loves You, I would be going with the drum. That was how, and to this day I still, <laughs> I still that informs my yeah, style. Well, that's awesome though. Yeah. But then you you told me a story one time about like when you did eventually move to Buffalo, you ended up playing a gigs in the disco era with this Polish uh, accordion player. Oh my God! And then Adam I want you to—I wanted to that one if you can, and then the other one where you got the gig with that Disco vocal band? group, the vocal group, and you were like in Wisconsin oh, on no, tour no. with them, or North something. Dakota. So to tell that Fargo, story, yeah, what? Yeah, what is that? Story? Oh, that was just—I I was just. I was dying and I moved to Evansville, Indiana for a year to follow a band. We all moved there so we wouldn't be disturbed <laughs> <laughs> and we can rehearse. Oh. But of course I met this girl and she moved there with me and then she got a job and then the band broke up two weeks later and oh. they all left and I was stuck there in Evansville, Indiana for a year. A bit of shedding I'm assuming. Yeah, a lot of shedding. but um. So this band came to the Hilltoppers. Uh, they were like a 50s doo-wop band. And they were all like really old, like the, the trumpeter was, a, I'm sure they all passed away. Now he was a total drunk if you didn't, you know, talk, he was a complete genoholic. A great trumpet player before 11 a.m. Oh. And, you know, and the singer who was the only original guy. So it was me, this singer, who could barely sing anymore. <laughs> And the trumpeter who had to sit down and slump over for the gig. And this chunky Cuban um, organist, right? That was the entire band wow. and me. And we sang four-part harmony. And their first gig was in Fargo, North Dakota. And they picked me up at, you know, in, um, in Evansville. I went to a, uh, they came through and I went to audition and they hired me. So, you know, I had never really you been on the been road. You should have been suspicious if they um, that. <laughs> you should have been suspicious. They were the definitely bat. on the way down they from their the Evansville kid right, right off right, the bat. Right. You should have you should have known better. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, really? okay, so, you know, I was really excited, you know, but I'd never been on the road. This is before iPhones or Dude, you know, this is like before This is before printed word. Yeah. <laughs> this is before the Gutenberg I remember, Bible. I, I remember I took my paints. I took a little set of paints to paint in my room. There's something to do, you know? And so, um, 
in Fargo, North Dakota, and immediately I was completely, we had two weeks there. It was so cold. I remember one night, it, I, I, I was, we had a night off. It was a Sunday night. I'd been with them for two weeks, and everyone else, you know, the, the Cuban guy had a girlfriend. He had three wives. He had a wife, and like he couldn't go to five states. So when we went places, sometimes we had to go all the way around Tennessee, you know, you know because he couldn't go there. And so, and like, uh, so I was like, oh my God, no, you know the older guys the, 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 each guy was hooked up I was all by myself and there was no one to talk to and I was terribly lonely and I was in this awful best western uh, hotel way out near the airport and it was just the wind was blowing and the, it was like minus 10 and there was all this snow out the window and I was so bored that I decided I, I'm just going to get out and I'm going to walk 3 miles to the mall and I walked there, and the mall, was, of course, was closed. Yeah. I, I knew it was closed. <laughs> you know, I just wanted to anyway. look in the window. Yeah. That's how bored I was. <laughs> and I looked in the window of the mall. I said, okay, now. And, and luckily, I had a, I had a little fifth of, um, of scotch, and I went back to my room, and... As I said, no iPhone, no, you know, no, no way to hear no music, walk, man, no, no, no walk, man, no nothing. I had a radio in my room, but it was one of those radios with, like, three... Click, click, click. One, two, three. Oh, yeah. They don't Remember give you those? any chance. Any choices. Yeah, just, just three. three one, two, three. Yeah. With a yeah. little speaker above the bed. Yeah. So I went to the radio, which I, of course, had turned on the radio. And all I had ever heard was, you know, so I turn it on. It was stuff like this. I turn it on. I go, oh, there's no, never going to be anything on, ever. So I turn it on, and I turn it channel one, and it was kind of like something like, a, and then Jesus came down. And, you know, and then I turned to number two, and, you know, it was like somebody like Jerry Vale or someone. And I was just despondent. And I said, oh, my God, what am I going to do? I'm going to die in this hotel room, <laughs> you know? And I turned to number three. And to this day, I really don't think that this was actually broadcast. I think you that think this was, was actually... It was a, a just, higher power. Yeah, it was a higher, but just for me. I turned to number three, and the voice just said, and now, four hours of the music of Charles Ives. Yeah! <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> and I remember I just drank my scotch and looked out at the snow and just listened to Charles Ives for four hours. And that that's, literally that's saved my life. That's when it all started going wrong. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So when you when you ended up in, in New York, you, you, you hit on the whole downtown scene. Yeah, I just... Blah, 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 yeah. blah, blah. Because it, it was not the downtown scene at that point. It was just you guys. Well, yeah, I mean, I think it was starting to be called the downtown scene, but they were the, I think, you know, I, I wasn't really into straight ahead jazz, and I wasn't really a, a rocker at that point. But at that point, nobody was into straight ahead jazz. It was the, it was in between. It was, no, right? I mean, if you played straight ahead jazz, all you did was uh, weddings and, and brunch, mm -hmm. you know, so mm -hmm. I, I, I didn't do those. I came to New York to get away from those things, to get away from the gig with the Polish right. uh, accordionist, oh, yeah. you know, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, you know, with the matchbook covers, with the, the, he had matchbook covers 
um, you know, with the Adam Tyler Quartet, with a woman like a, a look like a 1950s like a postcard woman with bare breasts, you know, like that all his, colorized out. You know, that was his, that was his business. Those card. were his business card oh matchbook covers with bare-breasted women. So. Well, that was the guy that was like before you went to New York. That's you before played yeah. in a polka band, right? Yeah, in a polka band. Yeah, and he I had like one of those big binders. With he had 455 tunes, <laughs> and he had weathered every single like musical change, you know. Except finally disco. He was killed by disco. <laughs> we, we had this gig and obviously we were misbooked and it was a it was a wedding and they were all really young people and they kept saying, play some disco. And we didn't have any disco, you know, and he was calling Night Train and shit. And I and finally they were going, play, play some disco. They were practically crying. And finally he had one disco tune in the book, he was saving it, and he said, Bob, turn to turn to page four fifty one. <laughs> So I called her, and it's, um, it's, um, uh, oh, what is that tune? Not, uh, not, not Boogie Nights, uh, Shake Your Booty. Oh, no. So I start, I said, okay, I start, because I knew how to play a disco beat. And everybody's like, yeah! And they just run to the floor, and then all of a sudden he starts. Shake, 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 shake. I shake your booty. Yeah. I shake your booty. And they all just stopped dancing, pointed to us, and broke out laughing. Like, literally laughing. People were crying. They were laughing so hard. This no. poor guy. Oh, I think, no. and I'd never heard from him again. Oh, anyway, but no. this is the kind of gig that I tried. Yeah. It was moving to New right, York to right. escape. Right. So I didn't want to play any, you know, I was kind of a weirdo, and I wanted to do something weird. So the downtown scene, although it wasn't a perfect fit, it was a lot of people who were like-minded for me trying to do something different, you yeah. know? And um, I think that's ultimately what I got from it. I I got the feeling that I was it was okay to be different and to be mm -hmm. weird even, mm -hmm. or to try something that might not work out or that might make people hit the floor laughing. That was okay. You just got back up on the horse, you know, and you did it again, you know? So that's what... I mean, the downtown scene for me was great for that. But, and also, I met a lot of people who I still play with or people that I still love their music, like Wayne, Wayne Horowitz, and, you know, we've all moved on to different areas, you know. I mean, the scene is so disparate Oh, now. of course, of so, course. But back then, it was really centered around the East Village, and, you know, everybody was there, and it was cool. This is pre-knitting factory. Right, because the knitting factory was like the mid-80s at all. Yeah, and people tend to think that the knitting, fac knitting factory was the scene, you know, but there was a scene before the knitting factory, a very sure. vibrant scene, sure. you know, and there were a lot of places to play, and and it was, you know, it was cool. It was, it was back when you could do a weird project at Tramps. You could do something, you, you, you know, it, it, it didn't have to be, and people would come out. You know, I remember mm -hmm. my first gig at um, uh, um, the, the club on White Street, Dan, not Danzateria, um, um, the one with the, they had a, it, there was a uh, garage door that was on the stage. They had an electrified garage door. So you would set up behind the garage door. And I remember the gig started at three. It was just the opposite of now, where you play and then kind of nobody gives a shit and then the disco starts and then everybody yeah, comes yeah, right yeah. before you it would be that the you know the dj first right. the disco first everybody get tanked up ready for the band 
Can you imagine wow. this? And they would wait for the band, and we would start at 3 a.m. Wow. That would be when we started. And people were ready to hear music, live music, because, of course, live music was better than recorded music, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's what people waited for. That's what they wanted to hear, you know? So I remember that, the, the you know, I, and I remember thinking when I first moved to New York, like, who the hell's going to come to the to a gig at 3 a.m., you know, like, this is so weird. Really? We start, and, and, and that garage door went up, and there were just, people were just packed, just packed out to hear whatever we were playing, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and I remember there was a club called 8BC, and Elliot and I used to play there. It was basically a pit. You'd walk in and it was a huge pit, and then on the other end was the stage on the same level you would walk in, but everyone else was, the audience was down in this pit. And um, it was on 8th between B and C, and 8th between B and C was so scary that we wouldn't even walk the half block to, to, to Avenue C or Avenue B. We would get in our car, our van, and drive if we wanted something to eat. Wow. Because it was totally bombed out. And, but that club, that was like one of the weird phenomenons where I remember people started showing up with um, uh, mink coats. People started showing up like slumming in the East Village, and, and, I, and Elliot and I would be playing our weird shit, like you know, with his hitting the guitar and his fractal geometry and whatever the hell we were doing. And women would come in with men and women, women coming with mink coats and guys in tuxedos Whoa. to hear us play. I mean, it just was so bizarre. They were culture vulture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Wow, yeah. what a trip. Yeah. It's a cool place, ABC. I miss those kind of venues. You, you know, can still find them. You just have to go to like Mississippi and yeah, Kansas exactly. and uh, Fargo, yeah. North Dakota. Right. They ain't here. You ain't gonna find no. one here. No, 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 no. That ain't gonna happen. So when you when you first started, when do, do, can you remember a point like when? Because I know we've been on the road so much, and I've heard so many incredible stories from you. Blah 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 blah. But can you remember, because so much of your career and the careers of people from your peer group were made not in the U.S., but in Europe and touring. And um, can you remember the first, like, when that changed? Like, when that went from being this kind of downtown scene where maybe you had John Zorn and Bill Frizzell and, you know, Wayne Horvitz and, and Elliot Sharp and you... Um, and I'm sure I'm leaving yeah, others, whatever. others out. Yeah. But, you know, when it went from being that to being like all of a sudden, oh, we are the cats that are playing these jazz festivals and right. quote unquote, and jazz it's sort of making happened, the money. It sort of yeah. happened really quickly. I mean, you know, it's, it, I, it was already sort of starting to happen. We, you know, we, we were the dominant, like, or the hot, let's just say we were the hot item when when I came to New York the dominancy was a hot item we would get interviewed I would get interviewed every week at one point you know where some you know interview magazine people magazine people magazine really? would be interested in the yeah shit like this it was wow. it was bizarre it's bizarre to think about it now but you know of course the Europeans became interested yeah and this is what year you think like about 80 or so, gotcha. somewhere around there, it started to really jump off, and you know, we started to go over there quite a bit. You know, I mean, of course, my first few times, you know, I, I also had my share of really 
bad European tours, you know. Oh, yeah. Really, you know, totally <laughs> screwed up, sleeping on floors and everything else. But um, with, you know, two gigs in two weeks or something. Nice. Uh, yeah, really it's kind of like it is now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't go there. Okay, I'll give you a window of opportunity. Well, we have three gigs at the beginning of the tour and three gigs at the end of the tour. Yeah, and it's great because we break, we can break even. We can break even. Yeah. But back then, we we I have to say we were lucky and we were really lucky. I I consider you know I was lucky enough to be able to go there when you could make bank and people wanted you there. Uh, and it was it was fabulous, you know. I mean, all things change. It's 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 real, really rough now for the young musicians. I feel badly for them, but it's only, in a way, it's kind of correct because the European scene grew up and they got their own music. Mm -hmm. That's my take on it. You know, they didn't, they didn't, which is great. Like, you know, get your own music that's not, you know, have as much to do or something to do with, I don't know, with jazz or what. You know, they 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 you know they do their own thing and okay. That's great, you know. Right, let let, right. let let them do that, and also. Well, ultimately, you know, it speaks to their people more than you know what. I mean, they have their right, they have, here now, have, I guess. They have their know. own culture, and you know, so so. But but then it was much more like you know they wanted jazz, and we were sort of on the fringes, of, to say the least, right. of jazz. Well, at that point, you're talking about before. You know, you're dealing with that time between when the 60s jazz and 50s stuff kind of petered out in terms of popularity, and before the more neo, um, you know, traditional guys came right, in the exactly. later 80s. There was that period where, like the art ensemble, Lester Bowie, yeah. Arthur we, Blythe, David all, Murray, yeah. all those guys, where that was the that and was the we all thought that was yeah. they they were going to be the next new masters. I remember going to an Arthur <laughs> Blythe gig at uh, the well, bottom line. Well, they were line. as far as I'm, well, I'm me concerned. Too. Me too. Know? They yeah. still are. But they got totally leapfrogged, you know. Oh, well, they got leapfrogged. They got an uh, interesting thing. I mean, they got kind of invisible. Yeah. You know? They got erased. Yeah, I mean, it's the, it is the, it's the fickle and capricious nature of the press. Well. And of the, well, I don't know what you want to want to call it, but. I have a kind of a dark view of it, but you know, I, I well, that's okay. This isn't. This is a has an explicit tag on it, so <laughs> even explicit ideas will be will be okay. I just think you know, it was too it was too scary for white America. It was too scary for you know record white America record company white America media. you know, like straight ahead jazz. I mean, come on, you know, like. With Winton was is a classical musician. Also, he's a very fine classical musician. You know, it's like he's perfect. He's you know that we're given the choice between that. He's not kind of like good cop, bad cop. You know, given the choice between that and Arthur Blythe or or Blood Ulmer or I mean, who are you going to pick if you're? It's, it seems it just seems so much safer. You know, I'm not even talking about the music. I'm just right, talking sure. about the whole image. <laughs> image of it. You're speaking yeah. of image and, and, and uh, yeah, and it was. You know, back, back it was just it was just really different back then. But yeah, I mean, also people were more passionately involved. Like, you know, when the neo conservative movement came, there were all kinds of huge articles, and people would be arguing about it, and you know, things it, like like it really mattered. Right. You know? right like right. like where's that now? I mean, 
before that whole thing happened, me and Wayne and Zorn and Ray Drummond made a Sonny Clark, a record of Sonny Clark's music. This was, you know, back before all that neoconservative stuff. We wanted to make a real, quote, jazz, like we all loved Sonny, Sonny Clark, and we wanted to make this record flat out, no irony, just a real record. But the point is that we made this record, and there was a huge article in the New York Times <clears throat> literally talking about if this record was legitimate, and they decided it was. And I remember one quote was, so the question is, can they, can they swing? And the answer must be yes. Like, but imagine this, yeah, yeah, like they yeah, were sure. dissecting like the social and political implications of our record. Yeah, now it's like, that's just completely out the window. Well, I mean, there's no room for it because you need to talk about new uses for bacon. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's taking up all the space. Exactly. New uses for bacon. Exactly. And mommy blogging. Right. <laughs> Sorry, no space left for you. You lost to the to the mom from, from Ridgewood, New Jersey, who wants to tell you how to make, uh, you know, uh, meatloaf muffins. Yeah. So, yeah. so it's finished. <laughs> It would have been great. What, what you know, happened? These guys, it's, it's so like, weird. you know, if you go back 20 years, it's like, man, let's let's all be friends because none of us wants to lose out to the to the mommy blogger, the person writing about new uses for bacon. Yeah, it's know. all stylized now. You know, everything's stylized. Mm. You know, it's like, you know, everything's co-opted and everything's stylized. You can hear Jimi Hendrix in car commercials. Sure, sure. You know. Well, that's you know. It doesn't mean that it's any that Jimi Hendrix is any less uh, paradigm shifting or no, or or was was was. You know, it just means that you know it's just like that book that um, noise book. What's the guy's yeah. name? Atali. Yeah. How he he talks about how musicians usually presage by a hundred years the. Uh, the tenets that will, yeah. will come about mm -hmm. in society later, and you know, and but the other side of that is, well, it's going to take people that much longer to kind of catch up, and you know, when the kind of whatever you want to call the corporate mainstream catches up to that, it it means mm. that you know it doesn't diminish the paradigm that was shifted anymore. It just means that mainstream culture has caught up to that. And to that and, and I see why sometimes. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting, this kind of phenomenon of musicians dying young, you know, like, you know, it's kind of like, yeah, they had the good sense to do it, or the good taste to die young, you know what I mean? Because I, I, sometimes I just think, like, what, I could take a guy like Kurt Cobain, like, what, what, I, sometimes I think he just saw the handwriting on the wall, like, what was, what was next for him? Is he just going to become, where's he, was he going to become, you know, where's his Foo Fighters, I mean, and with MTV and, you know, the Grammys and, you know, and and endorsing some, you know, gourmet potato chip or where, what, right. where was that right. going? Yeah, you know, yeah, sure, he sure. had his moment. It was that incredible moment and he made his statement and mm. within that moment it was a powerful statement. Mm. Where the hell was he going to go from there? Right. right. Nowhere. It was only going to get more and more watered down, more less and less relevant all the time. There's very few people who can sustain that yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. It's just like, you know, people that have been in war or athletes who have been in you know big games after that's all over you know kind of regular life is really really vanilla yeah and and yeah. these people have a lot of trouble just adapting to yeah. you know regular everyday you know Joe Schmo life 
So, you know, sometimes I wonder about, you know, when people, when your musicians die young, well, in his case, he, he really actively killed himself. But what about like somebody like Hendrix, you know, did he kill himself or did he just die of an overdose? Like, I, I wonder sometimes whether right. these people sort of see the handwriting on the wall, you know? Yeah. It's like there's yeah. only so much you can do. It, it, it's really hard to have like a whole lifetime of like paradigm shifting Right. Work. Right. That's why it's good to be like people like us. You yeah. Know? We don't have any paradigm shifting work in the first place. No, we do because there's, just, there's no paradigm. No one's interested. Well, there's no paradigm. <laughs> no one's interested. And you can just keep doing it year after year and enjoy it and make well, enough of right. a Well, that's what Boscrad said. He said, you know, you want to be famous? Takes, find something that the world, it, it, the world accepts and then just repeat it. Over and over and over <laughs> until you're <laughs> nauseous. And then yeah. that's what it is, because people want a brand. Absolutely. Lather, rinse, repeat. Yes. Repeat. As they say. Repeat. Repeat is the, is the optimum word, yeah. Yeah, no, that, that's very true. I, I mean... But, you know, I don't want to be negative, man. <laughs> Just so this whole podcast, I just sound negative, Dude, it's man. negative, man. It's, man, it's, it's, just... it's explicit. It's okay. People can people can handle it. If you want to talk about kale, you know that's, that's well. I fine. think if you you know when you get to be at my stage of life, you know one of the perks is you just say whatever the hell you damn well please. Right. You don't care anymore. There's nothing to care about. Right. Right. You know, what can someone do to me now? Not give me their gig. Yeah, you you're know? not going to get that fifty dollar gig. Yeah. I I cared about that deeply. When I was young, but I'm caring about it less and less now. But that's probably that's probably something's wrong with that. I should care more about not getting the gig. Yeah, about not getting the gig. I still love music. Music is that never goes great. away. That, that never goes music away. never gets dull. It never gets. It might it might throw some shit at you every once in a while, and it might yeah. make you have to deal with some stuff you don't want to deal with. But you have to deal with it anyway, and it ends up being better in the end. You know. Yeah. And I mean, the thing about you that that is has always been for me very inspirational is that although we're very different people, we travel very different paths in terms of our the way that uh, our uh, the way that we're we're built. You right. know what I mean? But what has always inspired me about you is that regardless, you're going to go for it. Whatever the imagination or the curiosity is you're going to go for it because you've learned over time and time again that it's always better to follow that crazy idea to its fruition rather than immediately start hedging your bets sure. from the first inception yeah, of that because idea. 90% of the stuff doesn't work anyway so if you if you're you know if you're hedging your bets then what have you got when it doesn't work at exactly. least if you do what you want to do you have that always totally, you know? totally. and uh, and I just believe in like one thing I could never abide is like giving you know not giving blood like if you're going to do it then do it if you're not going to do it don't do it right right so it's like when I like to be when I'm on stage I just I just just like to go for 
it all. Just just don't leave anything. Don't leave anything on stage. You know. Why would don't you, coast? Yeah. But, but why would you do? But this it happens all the time. Yeah, but, but that's just, crazy though. You know, because that's that's the whole uh, Somerset Mom thing where he does that. What was the the book he wrote? The, the Razor's about, Head. Yeah, where he he writes the thing about well, you know, I could become a bank teller because it's pretty easy to become a bank teller. You could be a mediocre bank teller. Right. And, but to be an artist, you have to be great. Yeah. And, and you still don't get anywhere, but you have to. So you have to decide what's your, yeah. what your mentality is. Well, I just say, if there's any other endeavor that you can, uh, you know, that will actualize you, then go do it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and not, don't do this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is only for people who really, you know, are stuck with doing it. Yeah, this is yeah, really yeah. only for people. And I think this is one of the problems, you know, because people get into it for you know i i have to say consider the wrong reasons they could get they get into it for some kind of fame or uh just something other than their needs i won't even say they should get into it for the for the purity of the music or any stuff like that because it's so that's so um subjective mm. like who the hell knows what that is but you know you're going to be really unhappy and unactualized if you don't follow the path that you you know that's really in your heart you feel is for you yeah, yeah. because everything else doesn't you're matter crazy to do this and you're you crazy to be crazy you to be a musician crazy yeah if you don't have a calling and it's not like you every decision i ever made in my life i only had people telling me you are making the dumbest decision Ever. Yeah, and it, of course, you and it are did. making the worst decision possible, and, <laughs> and they like, were right, and they were right every time. But it always seemed to work out for me yeah. because the results that I was looking for were different than the results that they thought I should be looking for. Right, but you, you know? right, exactly. One and two, you sort of had no choice. No choice. I mean, people always sometimes people say, "Do you ever get this?" People say, "Like, boy, it's so courageous for you to be a musician," and. You know, and I think I'm not courageous. I don't. I'm not courageous at all. I'm stuck. This is all I can exactly. do. This is what I do. If I didn't have to do this, and we've talked about this many times, we think about this every day. Damn it! I wish I could do something else. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's like yeah, yeah. it's it's so hard. And not only we're not even talking about economically difficult. It takes a toll on you psychologically because you know, as a musician of any worth. You're kind of a weather vane, and you're out there. You know, you're 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 the little thing on the the little Pontiac Preach, insignia in the front of the hood. You know, going through like the bad weather, and it's hitting you in the face. You know, you know, before it even gets to the windshield. You know, yeah. you're reporting back. Yeah. Oh, Jesus, man, that was well. It's really bad out of here for a couple months. You know, it's like this is this is what it is to be an artist of any worth. I mean, you're all your all your sensors are out all the time yeah. and like you're getting slammed constantly yeah. it's like who the hell would want to do that with yeah, their life yeah, only, you're not only volunteer people, right, for that no only you're people gonna, that have no choice yeah. but people see you know the the the, the out, outer trappings the stage the blah 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 and they think oh that's cool you know because everybody's just so bored with their crushing lives in their cubicles, you know, because yeah, everything yeah, is just yeah. so dehumanized. Right. Um, and this is, you know, my take on it. So it's just sort of like, yeah, it's, it's, it's really not for the, 
faint of heart, and it's not for anybody who yeah, just can't do it. Yeah, and I'm always astonished. Like, I remember being in a guitar shop once and on the road getting some strings, and there were these two guys in there, like, looking at guitars, and, you know, they had on clothing that I guess they were supposed to have on for their purposes, and, you know, and this one guy, he's, like, going back and forth between, like, a Telecaster and a Les Paul, and he just really is has... If he, if this guy, he's probably in his twenties. If he really wanted to be a musician, it was going to be really hard. You know, I could tell because he just didn't understand right. what it was. And you can hear somebody as elemental as John Lee Hooker, and you can hear somebody like John Cage, and you'll they they're in they're on the same path. Right. They understand and and on a, on a like a molecular level what music is and so this guy kind of didn't you know he played his licks and stuff like that and and after a while he turns to his friend and he goes so do you think what the Les Paul or the Telly which looks better on me (laughs) (laughs) and I was just like perfect but but it didn't make me mad at the time I it, it it was even worse than making me mad it it was so unbelievable to me that that mentality would even exist like it's absurd it's like people maybe going up to I don't want to use this this uh, analogy you know in vain or, or think that music is is more courageous than fighting in a war but it's like going up to someone like asking them about you're you're a nerd for a certain battle in World War two and you spend all your time asking this guy what it was like to because right. it's just like dude you know the guy that's like how does it look it just all these things it, I wish that I could have just downloaded my experience into him and he would have just instantly just been like okay cool law school it's all good right or plumber it's it's good this is great you know what I mean but you know and and you're definitely right in the thing that I think that that comes back when you were talking earlier about you know you'll have have this time and the 80s where you have people like Wynton Marsalis and and, and Lester Bowie arguing uh, you know very right. intensely about music and you 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 long for those times yeah, because now times. because both those guys are fantastic musicians regardless of how where you fall in the continuum of what you think about them now you have like you know the I was in the doctor's office the other day and they had on the serious station radio station the blues channel and it was I was sitting in there for half an hour and there was no not nary a a little Walter song nary a Muddy Waters song no Robert Johnson nothing it was just all recent stuff and it was so it was like that guy with the guitar that how does it look on me it's just like you have these people like kind of playing at the blues Mm -hmm. without actually playing the blues and that's what it's become it's become this thing where you just it's like the Gowanus Canal at this point it's like the thing's never going to be cleaned up you're not going to find pure water in there no matter how hard you try and I think that's what we're up against now it's like bring back the time when you'd have two very uh, very passionate people arguing for what they think the music should be whereas now it's just like well, yeah. no one's arguing because we want to watch whatever silly TV show it is where... Right. But people, I think that'll know. come again. I, I, I mean, it has to come again. I mean, I, how can it be that, that, that music and, and, and art won't come back to being in the forefront of people's consciousness? Well, it will, but it will just be... We keep using the word paradigm. It will just be 
a different paradigm yeah. and you know different different things. I mean, it, it'll it'll it has to happen. I mean, it's funny because there's so much music now, and we're sitting here saying music is not in the forefront of people's consciousness, whereas you know the music is such a big business all the entertainment is such mm -hmm. a big business so it sounds like it's very paradoxical what we're saying you know right. to people would i could see where they wouldn't understand well what do they mean like when is music going to come back but but really um if you want you know if from our view and from our perspective that's exactly right music all the all the things about music which is basically you know all political social economic you know music is yes as Stravinsky said you know with composers combine notes music is just sound you know sure it's just sound but it's got you know a, a meaning beyond the sound yeah you know it's yeah. a it's a real human phenomenon we have these ears and somehow making sounds pleases us but it also means something and this to me is the is the problem with music the idea that it's both that it pleases us but that it also gives us some kind of weird abstract information that we might be able to use in our lives and the 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 rectifying of those two things and the tension between those two things for me has always been what's at the like the core of music and sort of like what's the, the dilemma of music yeah. of you know it's like what and the dilemma of musicians it's do i you know is it is it entertainment is it a pleasing thing do i need to please people is it a situation where you know on one hand you have the the most you know a, a, a super performer on the other hand you have Milton Babbitt who basically said you know music is for the elites you know mm -hmm. it's just like why should it be any different than um, a molecular biology where you know no the great mass of people don't understand molecular biology but they keep making advancements why doesn't music do that too you know I can kind of see that point and I could see the point of somebody who's just you know laying in the cut and you know just making something yeah, yeah. that feels really good right, right you know but where's the I'm always fascinated as what where's the where's the resolution or is there does there need to be one but between those th two things because yeah. in my life it's always that it's always this thing like I see this and you know music that I think is valuable is under uh underrepresented or you know three people come out to hear it this happens to every musician sure. Sure. or music that I think is kind of crappy or oh, kind yeah. of derivative or kind of manipulative right that's right. even the worst it's easy to do then hundreds of people you know yeah, yeah, and, you sure. know and it seems sure. like geez it's just so transparently manipulative um, these are the issues that always you know confound yeah. me you know, yeah. kind of drive me crazy well I mean it's definitely you know every musician that's worth their salt has to address exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. And I know I've done it myself in my own sure. way. There have been many times in my career. Am I an artist or an entertainer? Is there a well, difference? Is, should there be a difference? Right, right. I'm definitely not as much of an artist as you are. I definitely am don't. I'm not in that spectrum. I'm much more of a street person. I was a street musician and I came up from playing blues from my mom and her friends and and I, I'm part of that continuum I'm a folk musician right but does that more mean than, you're more you're not, you're but, an entertainer not an artist but no but I think I am in that I 
when I was a street musician, I understood if I played certain things with a certain intention, right. people would stop. Right. If I played other things, it didn't matter what the notes were. Right. It was the intention behind right. the notes and how I presented them. Of course. They would stop, and right. I would get a lot of people. If I started to play jazzier stuff right. with more overt attitude of we're playing for ourselves and we're doing this, nobody would stop. Right. I mean, nobody And you wouldn't would be able to eat right. that So night. I started to understand how that, how that worked, and then it, came, then it came to the point, well, man, I play the way that I play... There's something in there that people like and it makes them stop. Now, what is that and do I like that? And then it became the point of, do I like this? Do I like what I'm doing that they like? And then for me, that's always been the issue. And I would get in situations where I have major labels or whatever, and I'd get a certain amount of uh, success. Right. Right when that was about to really break open, I would feel like the band is done. This way of playing I don't like. People might like it a lot, but it's done. Right. Someone else wants to do it, they can take it. And you say you're not so an artist? I would say maybe I am Maybe I am an artist, but I don't have... I, I think I am because I'm always doing the next thing. I mean, you rejected all that. You yeah. rejected everything that, you know, the entertainer world wanted you to be to further entertain. Yeah. I guess, but I think I'm an entertainer on my own, in my own way and the way that I want to be. And maybe that is, maybe that is being an artist. But I feel that from... That, I feel the same way, though. No, I hear you. I hear you. But I know that I have my audiences out there and it changes with each different shift I make. And I'm always trying to communicate to them. It's always a communication. It's never... A situation, even when we had Ground Truth, when you and I did Ground Truther, and we were, it was completely improvised. We did not say a thing about anything we were playing. When we got on stage, there could be, it could be an hour of what appeared to be quote unquote noise. Mm -hmm. But our intention was always to bring people in to what we were yeah. doing. And people felt that. And we people, we had people. We, we'd be like, wow, this is crazy. This is crazy what's going on. It's improvised. And then we would have those five minutes of pure perfection. Not perfection, but where everything came together and, right. and the concept was realized and that message was realized. And you could just feel the audience go, yeah. yes, I'm glad I sat through that, all of that um, earlier part of the book because this exposition. The denouement is so intense right. that it's worth it all, you know. So, I mean, that's the way that I, that I think about it. I don't. Maybe that is being an artist. I, I'm not sure. You, I mean, you I can tell me. I don't. I don't. I don't you know. know. I mean, it's just that's the. I can't. That's a question that remains always unanswered for me. Like, you know, what that even means. But I know that. Um, you know, it's it's important to you to be present and and to include your audience. But I think you know, uh, but on your own terms, mm -hmm. you know, and it's not so different. You know, I think it's just you. Your music, luckily, I, I think maybe is is a is a music that also you know can speak to people. Whereas you know, some people they're actually playing what's in their hearts but it's odd yeah yeah <laughs> and they would love to connect to people 
Um, but they just can't, you know. Like I feel like somewhat myself that way sometimes. You know, I don't I don't see what's so odd about a lot of my music. I hear it perfectly well. Of course, but, of course. But yeah. you know, but I but I can understand how some people with some of my projects, you know, it it it's difficult to get in. Right side them right you know, and I have to accept that well for instance if you took your like I'll play people oh you know play them to ground truther play them some of the Miro thing play them a few different things whenever I play them coalition of the willing of course or that bump record right the counterclockwise record yeah the one where it was all the rock the beats, modular the, the modular, modular which is awesome it's one of my favorites for yeah. real I'm not blowing smoke um, because you don't pay me enough for that shit. Right. But, um, but you know, whenever I play those records, people are like, ooh, I like that. Ooh, I like that. And I just think it's, I think it's, there, there's an entry point in those records. Even though, like, Coalition of the Willing, you have all of this, essentially, if you strip it down and take all the stylism out of it, it's minimalist composition, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. If you take it down to its, its bare, uh, bare minimum, but... It's played by people who, I mean, when I was playing, I didn't know what's minimalist composition. What the hell is that? Right. It's, it's like nothing? What is that? You had to teach me. I was like, well, I don't know what the hell this is. <laughs> you know, so, you know, we were playing these tunes that were like, to me, it's just like, oh, yeah, this is a roadhouse rock groove. Oh, this is a ZZ Top groove. This in is nine. a Zeppelin groove. In nine, occasionally. <laughs> right. Or, and then, but I'm playing essentially the same part, but it's really right. not the same part. It's a little tiny bit different every time and that's what's so fucking maddening about it and what yeah. makes it so difficult for somebody like me to play you know but you know you have that feel and with that counterclockwise records you had those it was all about the drum beats in right. really ultimately. that's the ultimate I think that that's what it is those records had a strong beat they had a strong beat and they had the blues in there yeah, and when and you get people, away from those two things it's harder as here it is in Europe, I find it the, the exact opposite. I find like when I go to Europe, it's a little more difficult to me because I rely so much on the groove and that blues feeling, right. that American music feeling, that if you just take my music apart and you don't have that in there, there's really nothing in there. It's like the Archies, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's even, it makes the Archies look like Ives, you know what I mean? It's so simple, right. you know? But it's honest and it is what it is, so for me, it's a little more difficult because they like that hustle where you know they like to have a brochure where they read about the music and understand the concepts. I know it. you. You, you got, know what you I got mean. A I thing, got my I thing about that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not getting drawn into that <laughs> on the podcast. <laughs> but I tell you one thing though. One of my favorite moments was when we were playing with Coalition of the Willing in Europe on one of those super nice tours. Uh-huh, super um, cush tours. Yeah. yeah, that Johnny had. Remember Johnny, um, the guy Johnny. in Morellenbaum, the guy in... Oh, Johnny! Yeah, in, yeah, in, yeah, in, in Italy. In, in yeah. Sicily. In Sicily, and we were doing... And, you know, you'd have these people coming out expecting to see, like... Bobby Previtt bumped the Renaissance in a nice acoustic evening of, right. you know... And then we would do we'd that. we'd come out with that thing. We, we, some of the tunes were like heavy metal tunes, for God's sakes, you know? And um, and I remember, we, you know, the people, they come out in, in, like, in Sicily, the 
they're so well dressed and well groomed, yeah. and this is like the thing they they they're like they subscribe to the series, you know. Probably like last week they saw like Brad Meldow trio, and the week before that they saw like Joe Lovano, mm-hmm. maybe Diane Shore. Who knows what it was? Right. And so then we come out with this insane like ZZ Top ACDC minimalist stuff. Um, and, you know, I remember with seeing these people like these, you know, middle-aged, very elegantly dressed, you know, uh, Sicilians sitting there. And the first note is like a big power chord. And it literally was like a cartoon. It like, looked like their hair was just being blown <laughs> off their heads. And the look of absolute horror and complete, like, lack of co- incomprehension in yeah. the eyes. Like, what's going on? I could get, I can't get out of here fast enough, but I don't know how to do it. And then some people say, and I remember one guy, an older Italian guy, he came backstage at the end of the gig and he like had his hat in his hand. This is how I remember it. And he came up to you and he goes, Bobby, why? Why? Why, Bobby? Why? <laughs> but what a beautiful, why isn't that seen as, this is, this is what I don't understand. Why isn't that seen as, a beautiful feeling as something to be sought after. I mean, the idea, the feeling that we're at sea, the feeling that we're lost. I mean, I like to say, like recently, I wrote this essay and I was saying in it like, you know, what the hell? Like music isn't like real life. That's Art isn't like real life. That's exactly the good thing about it. You can take a chance. You know, you're not gonna run your if you if you take a risk in art, you're not gonna like get stabbed in an alley or run your car into a yeah, pole yeah. or or overdose on some drug. Right. It's right. just music. Yeah, yeah. So you know, you mean you can't even sit there and be faced with something that you don't understand at all, and that is bad. That freaks you out. Like to me, that would be exhilarating yeah. if I like. You know, that's why I rarely go to see music. Andrea and I, we go to see Weirdo Theater because when I go see Weirdo Theater, I don't know what's going on. And I love not knowing what's going on. That's my favorite thing because it's only when you're lost that you're going to find a new path and a new way to get to, you know, you'll have to take your machete out and you'll have to dig through some stuff and you're going to find something else. Yeah, you'll have to figure it out for yourself. Exactly. But if you're always like the well-worn path, well-worn path, like what the hell is so bad about, about being somewhere where someone's presenting you with something where you have no clue how it was put together, how it's organized, what it might mean, any of those things. I mean, to me, that would be terribly exciting. Like, please, someone do that. Yeah. Please, <laughs> please, can someone please present me with something right. where I don't go like, oh, I know how you put that together, or yeah, I get it, now this is going to happen. Exactly. Okay, four right. bars from now, that's going to happen. Yeah, okay, that can be all right if it just feels really good, right. and that's what I like want. Yeah. Yeah. But it better have that, Yeah. you know? Um, but it's just always so strange to me how people are freaked out about you know, being lost. We've lost the ability right. to be lost. Yeah, and that is exhilarating. I mean, I remember seeing uh, Lester Bowie Brass Fantasy like when they when I was younger. You know, like in, right. in the mid '80s. And, you didn't and know what they were doing. I right? had no idea what that was, and it blew my mind because I started to get into the sound of the brass rubbing up against each other, and I started yeah. to get into the the juxtaposition between the drums and the tuba and all the stuff that was going on, and that. And, but and I didn't even know it was happening. I didn't even think about it. It just happened. Exactly. But I had background that I didn't know about that allowed me to to 
decode what was going on because I I grew up with the blues and I understood right. that and I grew up with rhythm so I understood that so I had and I think like people like certain people are going to come to a gig and if there are too many steps for them to to learn how to to figure out how to listen to what you're doing then they won't even be able all they're going to hear is the superficial aspect of it that they don't like right but here's the point they don't need to do that why is there so much emphasis on figuring it out in the first place mm. who cares about figuring it out i mean that's the whole point it it could be unfigureoutable or or it could be in the middle of the concert you sort of stop listening to the music entirely and you're off on a whole other train of thought right. or feeling right. or something right. and you don't even and then and then you kind of check back in or god knows where you could go this is the thing why does everything have to be figured out analyzed and then put in a box oh i get that yeah. i've decoded that i understand that because really we don't understand jack shit well, they have you know? to have that because there's like thousands of people that need to write a thesis and get a job teaching music somewhere eventually so that's why it has to but be. you think those people are at our concerts no. i just think you know regular people stop trying to you know try to put yourself in a situation where you're in the middle of the ocean with a, just a life preserver how grand i mean it wouldn't be so grand to be in the really the middle of the ocean yeah, yeah. with a no, life no, preserver no, that would be no. frightening yeah, and yeah terrible but you're in a concert yeah. hall you know how great to the, you can get that feeling you can have yeah. a virtual middle right. of the ocean right. you know right. yeah. and this could lead you to something else something you've you've not considered why is it so important and i check myself and i do this all the time i've stopped like trying to even make a decision or about what I've just seen or heard, or even think that it's important, Charlie. To, to make a decision. Yeah, yeah. I stopped even like I go there, and you know, of course, the question is, well, what'd you think? Did you like it? And I now I I like to say, and I like to try to feel. Well, I don't think anything, because I don't want to think anything, especially five minutes afterwards. Mm -hmm. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to think about what I'm thinking about, and I don't want to parse it. I just want to experience it, you know, and I think this is super important now, especially in the age of Instagram and, you know, it's like, I just want to, I just, can you just people let me experience it without having to document it, document it yeah, decode yeah. it, figure it out, talk about it. I just want to experience yeah. it first. Yeah. Just let yeah. me do that. And then later, I don't know where that's going to take me, but it'll certainly take me somewhere because you're my somewhere better than you know if I had in the first moments decided I liked it yeah I didn't like it and beside the fact that I think I've gotten a lot more sometimes from music I've hated than mm. music I've liked so what's the big deal why do I even have to like it this these are things I'm starting to think about sure, now. Sure. I don't I, I don't do I have to like it to for it to give me something you know I, I don't think so yeah, I, I, I mean, you know, I would agree with that to a certain extent because there are definitely people who had introduced me to music which I was just like, I really can't stand the way this sounds. This makes my skin crawl. Really? Uh, about 10 years later, it's like on constant rotation on my turntable. <laughs> Hello! You right, know what I mean? Right. So it's, it's, it's a time and a place kind of yeah. thing. But I think that what you're talking about is also very difficult because it's the intersection of music and capitalism. 
and the intersection mm -hmm. of music and whatever system music happens to be making a living out of because right. people do need to eat one way, shape, or form, you know. Oh, sure. And, you know, if you live in Cuba, it has a different thing. If you live in oh, sure. uh, right, West Africa, a little village, it has a different right. thing. So our thing in this country is so... We are so into... It's almost like that whole thing with the record companies back in the day where it's like this situation where, like, the parasite is is way more enormous than the host, you yeah. know. And it's it's I think a lot of especially with a lot of the music that you do that relies, in a lot of ways, it relies on, um, kind of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? People who are outside of the playing of the music to to give it feet. You know what I mean? So you have to rely on people that are maybe in a university or maybe a performing arts center or maybe this thing. And those people, each one of those people has 10 people in their circle that one has, they all want their comments and their ideas about what you're playing to be just as important as what you're playing mm -hmm. is. And, and I think that that's a tricky situation for someone like you because your, your music can be misconstrued by those kinds of people mm -hmm. as being wanting to be a part of their culture. Right. If it's construed mine, at all. Mine doesn't. Mine is just the blues right. and some groove with some information on it that makes, you know, it's right. fine. I just sell a few tickets here and there, you know. But a lot of what you do has to, you have to, you have to deal with that paradigm and those people. And that's a very tricky, I think it's a very tricky thing to navigate because everybody's an expert. Yeah. But what about the people I'm, uh, who are just happened who are just there once you get the gig? I mean, those are the people. I mean, those the 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 gatekeepers are never going to unanalyze and right. That's right, their right, job. Right, that's right. kind of their. Yeah. That's what they do. All the music industry, you know, right. hangers on. But it's pretty me. I mean, my my experience with it, it from having earlier been like oh well maybe I should read this guy maybe I should read this and then as you come up you get to know these people you play with a lot of great musicians who really say very little about their music maybe they'll say like gray or yeah. they'll say uh, man I sure would like to go get a drink now right and you're thinking wow I'm experiencing the deepest music I've ever heard right and hear this you know but it, you know as I get further and further on I start to realize how of what little importance that really is and ultimately how much more noise it adds speaking about yeah to yeah. the equation and yeah. and I mean we all like to talk about it and people get very moved about music they want to explain it but you yeah. know it's just yeah I, it's a very human thing of course to do but you know it's it, trying to do that it lessens the emotional impact of right. the music right you know a lot you know, it's I I think, and just the just the idea that you know it could be some just can't we just carry the idea in our heads that there can be things in life that we do not understand and that's okay. Mm. We may never understand them, or like you, ten years later they might be in heavy rotation. Right. But it's all right if they're not now. It's all right if it's something that's you know, beyond your ken. If it's all right, it's it's no it's no uh, d disaster 
You know, yeah. it's no cause for like jumping up and getting out of the theater. It's no cause for, you know, any any of this drama. It's just like, just experience it. You know, I mean, yeah, just experience yeah. it. And then, you know, time will tell what that experience will bring you. You know, it's like, whether it's going to be in heavy rotation on your turntable or you're going to forget about it or whether you're going to buy the record like I did in layers, you know, 30 years later yeah, and yeah. to try to figure it out, right, you know, because right. I couldn't. There's a perfect example. I had no clue what I was listening to. Really, I couldn't I couldn't I couldn't crack the code. And, uh, you know, now I listen to it with di completely different ears and with completely different uh you know, life experience. Sure. All those sure. years have gone yeah. by. So that's the other thing. Do I trust myself to make a decision about something so so important as music? Do I trust myself to make a decision about it so um, so quickly and so decisively and definitively? You know, and I don't know if I do. I don't yeah. know if I yeah. if I trust myself to be because you know what. What the hell do yeah. I know? And then there's also the things that people expect Bobby Previtt to say about something. And maybe yeah. that was the Bobby Previtt 10 years ago. The, not ten, the Bobby Previtt ten, 10 minutes ten ago. Minutes ago. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll leave it there, man. All right, dude. Layers. Thanks, we start on layers and we end on layers. We end on layers.